First Peter chapter 2, verses 18 and 19 and 20 we'll cover this morning uh, about the first half of this paragraph. Let's read together. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Father, we praise you that you are a gracious God. Father, that you have been gracious to us to bring us here and to provide in so many ways. We pray now that as we read and as we study your word, that it would be implanted into our hearts and minds and with meekness receive the implanted word that is able to save our souls. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. <clears throat> well, this study in First Peter, we're learning from God through Peter what God says is our number one priority in each station of life. In all areas of life, there seems to be just an ever-present, never-ending stream of stuff and things that can cause stress or worry or anger or depression or even anxiety. And so many, so many things could happen, right, or might happen, and what if this, and what about that? And many of those things are beyond our control, many of those things that paralyze us with worry or fear. Many of them are way far outside of our control, but not beyond the control of our good Master, Heavenly Father, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, recent studies have shown that about 85% of what we worry about never happens. <laughs> I don't know if we realize that. We worry about a lot of things. We think about a lot of things, get anxious about a lot of things that never even ha- end up happening. So a lot of the time we're doing those kinds of, we're, we're putting those kinds of pressures on ourselves. Last week we considered what it is that God really wants us to do as we live holy lives for Jesus under a human government. Rather than worrying about who holds what office or what political party holds more power, here's what we do. We voice our opinion in this country. We vote. More importantly, we pray and we trust the Lord with what's happening. But that's about the extent of the mental energies that we're to put forth about the human government. The rest of our time, we submit. Um, That's what the Lord wants us to do. He says, um, submit, be subject to the human institutions. Obey the law. Now, I trust that last week you had some productive conversations about those what if, what about, what happens when, (laughs) those kinds of questions. I know I had some um, beneficial conversations along those lines. But remember that in all those discussions and all of the things that happen in life when all of the what ifs and the what nows become what now, (laughs) what, what abouts and what ifs, they become what now. The overarching grand command, remember here, is to be holy and to love. And if we're doing that, if that's what we're consumed with, living for our Lord, then a lot of those, well, what ifs and what abouts and what nows can be answered fairly simply, even if not easily, right? There's a difference between simple and easy. Simple answer, okay, submit, it's not always that easy for us, right? But we've got to be consistently, constantly asking ourselves, what do I want? What am I after? And why do I want it? right? What what do I want and why do I want it? It's okay to want things and need things. We've talked about that before. But it's not okay to want things or need things that are sinful, right? That, That go against what God has said. And it's not okay to want things or need things that are good more than we want or need our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. When we do that, we'll sin and we'll stop submitting to the government. We'll stop submitting to God. We won't do anything else that the Lord says. Well, the same thing applies at work as we'll see here in verses 18 and following. The same tendencies and the same instructions both apply at work when we're at our job as they do with government. Our tendencies at work are just as strong and oftentimes just as self-centered on me, what I want and what I deserve. Our culture has really fed into that, especially our work culture. It's become consumed with my rights at work, right? My rights. In nearly every workplace, the U.S. Department of Labor mandates either a notice or a poster be displayed 
that's entitled Employee Rights Under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Other posters are also required. It provides information on employee safety and employee rights and responsibilities under the Family Medical Leave Act, employee rights for workers with disabilities, much more. But my purpose is not to demean any of that. That's a blessing that we enjoy in in this country. We have probably the best working conditions in the world because of the protections that we have in those rights. But I bring them up just to show the pervading mindset that carries through our thoughts and our minds at work a lot of times. You know, it's not just enough to go to work and get paid and be done. It's not enough to go to work and get the tools that I need and get paid. It's not enough to be safe in my work. It's not enough to have a fair number of hours. I need more rights, right? I've got to have more. People begin to demand rights. And they've been very beneficial, but those rights are never taken away. They just get added to, right? We, we start taking them for granted, and then we demand even more. And some people become interested in their rights more than they're interested in actually doing any work, right? <laughs> we, we've known and even been some of those people sometimes. But there's a problem with our view of work when all we're thinking about is my rights, What God says we need to be thinking about and and doing at work is doing our best, giving our all, working as if we're working directly for the Lord, because we are, even though we're working for a boss, and not only working hard when the boss is watching, right? There's much more. You have some verses in your notes later on in Colossians and Ephesians for studying what the Lord has to say about work, but the main heading for all of this here in 1 Peter is submit. Let's just... Let's just obey the, the boss. Let's, let's do what the boss says. And by the way, we've chosen that word submit because it's a little bit of a stronger word. Maybe it's, maybe it's a little offensive to our flesh. Maybe it kind of strikes a, a, a chord in us, in our flesh. It's, it's the word in some translations here in the ESV we have be subject to. But I've chosen that word submit because, you know, that just kind of, it's a chord that just isn't quite right in our minds. It kind of stings a little bit. It's a hard pill to swallow. But that's what the word means, and it's what we need to hear often, right? Against what the culture is telling us, to stand up for yourself, demand your rights. God says submit. But the question that might arise for you this morning as after we've read verses 18 to 20 is, how do we get from a passage that addresses servants to us today in our places of work? I mean, we're not servants, we're not slaves and, and I hope that you were wondering that. I really hope that you were wondering, why did you just read about instructions to slaves and servants, um, but now you're talking to us and saying that this is going to apply? I hope that you don't ever check your brain at the door as you come to the Word, or, or your heart either, for that matter. Bring both to the Word. As you read it for yourself and as we come together, bring your heart and mind and His Word will penetrate both and change both for His glory. That's what we're after but your mind and your heart have to be engaged. So, so how do we get from this passage about servants to us at work? Well, the first thing I want to state is that in no way are we equating modern American employees with the living conditions or legal statuses of a slave in the first century. We're not making a one-for-one correlation here in every way. The word used here um, is a synonym for the usual word of slave um, some of you who are um, familiar with Greek words for certain words in the New Testament, the, the usual word that you may be used to is doulos. Doulos, this is a different word. It's a virtual synonym. It's oiketas or oketais, and it's usually a household slave. Um, but it's really essentially a, a, a synonym. They're both slaves, <laughs> so it's not like there's one that's better than the other. At this point in history, there were as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Uh, that's a lot of people who were enslaved at this time. With the Roman victories, when they would come in and they would be victorious, they would conquer the people, and they would either kill people or they would enslave them. People would become slaves. And when slaves had children, the children also became slaves. They were born into slavery. And by this point in history, in the first century, most slaves had been born as slaves. And some could purchase their freedom, but most remained slaves. It was a very common thing. In fact, it was the Roman ideal. 
the ideal was for Roman citizens not to have to work, but to live the quote-unquote good life, right? (laughs) The good life. All the work was done by the slaves. That was what they were going for. All the work was done by slaves. I don't want to have to work. In fact, here's the way one commentator sums it up, uh, the attitude of the free Romans at the time. He said, quote, the Roman attitude was that there was no point in being rulers of the world and doing one's own work, (laughs) right? Let the slaves do that and let the citizens live in pampered idleness. The supply of slaves would never run out, end quote. So that was the idea. Let's all be free and let's enslave people to do all the work for us. So the people doing the work, you know, we think of slaves as the people that were doing the menial tasks, and they were, but the slaves who were working in other professions, in skilled professions, they were still slaves, and they were doing the rest of the work, like doctors and nurses and musicians and artists. They were still slaves. And so slavery was very common. Now, life wasn't always terrible for Roman slaves, but they were never legally recognized as human beings. You'll recognize this name, Aristotle. Here's a quote from Aristotle about slaves. There can be no friendship nor justice toward inanimate things. Indeed, not even towards a horse or an ox, nor yet towards a slave as a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. So that was, the, that was the pervading mindset, even among Aristotle, among the, the, the intelligent people, intelligent, unintelligent, whoever it was, that was the idea. Another Roman said the only difference between a slave and a cart was that the cart didn't talk. It's just amazing, right? I mean, the, the level of, of thought that they placed toward slavery and the people as slaves, not as people. So even if life was good as a slave, even if you had a fair master, you were still a slave, and you had no rights, and for you there was no way of any justice. So in that way, there, in no way does a slave equate to a modern worker today. But there are enough similarities in the area of work itself, again, doctors and nurses and artists and, and skilled and unskilled workers, there are enough similarities in the area just of the work itself that demonstrates that these instructions apply to us today. In the word of one scholar and theologian, he said, quote, even though there is no exact parallel to such servant status in modern society, the fact that this was by far the most common kind of employee-employer relationship in the ancient world and that it encompassed a broad range of degrees of functional and economic freedom means that the application of Peter's directives to employees today is a very appropriate one, end quote. Okay, so that's how we get from a passage on servants to us today. Our responsibility to work and our responsibility of holiness at work doesn't change, no matter what kind of status we have legally or what people that we're working for view us as, what what kind of status we have in their eyes. But one other thing I want to mention as we get started on our text, and this is important in our culture is that the word slave or slavery can sometimes conjure up terrible images and pictures of racial slavery, such as has gone on in the world and even in our own country in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, We don't want to, we need to make sure that we don't equate the slavery that happened here with the slavery that happened then. And I'm not justifying slavery at all in in any sense, but note that when the Bible speaks of slavery, it is slavery. It is, it is talking to servants and slaves, but it's, it, it came about for two different, generally for two reasons, not racial reasons. Either you were part of a conquered nation, and again, you were either killed or enslaved, or you had a debt that you couldn't pay, and so you were either forced or you volunteered yourself to become a slave to pay off that debt. The kind of racial slavery where you think that someone is less human because of their skin color, would have been foreign to many people. They didn't care what color you were. If you were conquered, you were a slave. Um, And only using slaves for menial tasks wouldn't have made much sense to many people in the ancient world. But this is part of why this is so important in our culture today, because many today are claiming that the Bible supports slavery, that the Bible is in support of slavery. It doesn't explicitly state that slavery the institution itself is wrong, okay? So if we're looking for that in the Scriptures, we're not going to find it. And so people say, therefore, arguing from silence, it must say 
It must be in support of slavery. But the Bible was written to people in certain contexts, right? It speaks to those people in their circumstances. Because slavery did exist, the Bible addresses those people instead of ignoring them and pretending that they didn't exist. The Bible, uh, the authors of the Scriptures address those people in their circumstances. The Old Testament has very specific instructions on how to treat slaves um, in better ways than they were treated in other places. Um, There was a strict timeline for their release. They were not to be enslaved for their whole life unless they decided to do that. There were legitimate reasons that some slaves in the Old Testament would choose to remain slaves rather than be free. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul asks, were you a slave when called? That means when you became a Christian, were you, were you a slave? Were you a servant when you became a Christian? What does Paul say? He says, do not be concerned about it. And we say, what? <laughs> Don't be concerned about it. Paul, slavery is a big deal. It, it's not right, right? I mean, it's, it's not a good thing. It's not right. He says, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. He says, if you can get free, be freed from slavery, then by all means, yeah. I mean, avail yourself of that. But he seems to have this attitude of, it's just not as big of a deal as we would think it should be. Why not? Well, it's because of, in 1 Corinthians 7, the way that he leads off that paragraph, he says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. So again, we ask the question, who's in charge of our life? Ultimately, the Lord is. Just as surely as God is in charge of kings and nations and macro events, God is in control of my life and your life. Now that you have turned from sin to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7, you have more important things to do than demand your rights and your freedom. Paul explains that if we are called to the Lord as slaves, we become free in Him. And, And if we are free as we're called, we become slaves to the Lord. And so, To Paul and to the Lord, to the Lord Jesus Christ, there are more important things than us demanding our rights. If we're called to belong to Him, we belong to Him. Paul says, you were bought with a price. So don't become slaves of men. He actually says, don't become slaves of men if you can help it. And if you can get out of slavery, then do that. But my priority is on what God has for me, not what I have for me. That's what Paul's getting at. We want to acknowledge, though, we want to state plainly and unequivocally right here, right now, that any kind of racial justification for mistreating people or treating people differently or for slavery, for anything else, it just mistreating anybody because of race or color of skin is wrong, patently wrong, because every human being is made in the image of God. We also want to state as plainly as Paul does to Timothy that those who enslave people, because it is still happening today, we'll talk about that in a minute, people who enslave people are lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, and profane. And if you wonder where I'm getting that from, it's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, and I'm not sure I included that in your notes. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Those who enslave people, they're, they're put into the same group as people who strike fathers, murderers, sexually immoral, homosexuals, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So those who, those who in, uh, enslave people and, and put them into the slave trade are ungodly sinners, unholy, profane, lawless, and disobedient. Slavery appeared in the first civilizations of mankind as part of the sinful depravity of man. Not, you know, I mean, every culture, no, almost every culture participated in slavery uh, in different forms. And despite it being illegal everywhere on the planet today, there are still an estimated 40 million people in slavery today. And according to recent reports, about a quarter of them, 25%, that's 10 million of them are children. So slavery is not something that we are condoning. It's not something that we're brushing aside. It's a serious issue. It's still a serious problem. And we can pray for people who are enslaved. But what I don't want us to do is to let those ideas of slavery stop us from understanding Peter's instructions that are relevant and applicable to us here and now. 
Um, the reason that we went over that is because it's becoming a louder um, chorus by people in the world. You people, you Christians, you believe that Bible, it supports slavery. And I think we've seen that it doesn't exactly support slavery. If you can get out of it, do it. If you can avoid it, do it. And those who are enslaving people are wrong and sinful. But what the instructions that we have here as servants apply to us, hopefully you can see that what we're talking about this morning is important for us and that it applies. So concerning work, there's a lot to think about at work, right? There's a lot to worry about for many. Am I earning enough money? Is this what I should be doing? Is this, am I doing my calling? Is, is, this, um, is there a growth here? Can I, can I be challenged? Can I find interest here? Do, do I like the people that I work for or with? <laughs> That's a big question for a lot of people, right? Um, here's a big one. Am I going to keep my job? Job loss consistently rakes as one of the top five most stressful events in a, purpose, in a person's life, losing their job. So what are we to be thinking about? What are we to be working on while we're at work in our minds? Again, what we're after is what God wants from us, not what the world says is important or what I want in demanding my rights. We want what God wants, right? So the Lord may have you in the place where you are at. Even if you don't love that place, even if you don't love your position, the Lord may have you there so that they can see what a Christian looks like doing that same job, right? Someone who lives for the glory of God as a cook, as a chef, as a construction worker, a secretary, a CEO, a, a whatever it is that we're doing at work, what does it look like for a Christian to do that job? Well, you know because God has you there to be that thing. What God wants is a holy people. So what does holiness look like at work? Well, there are two parts, as you see in your notes. Number one, Holiness at work looks like that we need to purposefully submit to your boss. Verse 18, purposefully submit to your boss. Peter says, servants, be subject to your masters. This is the same word that was used back in 13. It again means to arrange yourself under the authority of another for the purpose of obedience. Listen and do what they say, right? It's the continuing message as we seek to live every part of our life for the holiness, for the glory of our Lord and Savior. Again, nearly everyone who worked was a slave. At this point, nearly all Christians were slaves at this point in church history. Regardless of how you were treated, though, you were to submit to the one over you. Whether it was a good master or a bad one, you were to submit. Now, brothers and sisters, if that's true of servants who were in that status of having no rights whatsoever... How much truer is that for us as employees with rights, with employers who are legally and ethically prohibited from beating us, taking away our food, taking away any of our rights and privileges and much more? How much more should we who enjoy those kind of working conditions submit to the bosses that we have? But what about if my supervisor gives me all the dirty work? <laughs> submit. What about, because I always have to do the dirty work. What, like, submit. Why can't they just give it to somebody else for a change, right? Maybe they like the way you do it. <laughs> uh, maybe because you have this dedication to serving your Lord and living that holy life for Him, when they give you the dirty work, they know that you're not going to complain. They know that you're going to do it and you're going to do it well, so they ask you to do the dirty work all the time. Maybe it's because they don't like you. <laughs> What? <laughs> Could that happen? Sometimes we can fall into patterns of not working hard, can't we? I mean, sometimes, you know, if, if we're always going on about our rights, I need my rights, I demand my rights, and we're not doing much of the work, they're giving us the dirty work so that we'll get off of that and leave and go find another job, right? But maybe if they don't like you, it could be because they just don't like hearing about Jesus as you're talking, as you're working, as you're praying, whatever it is. In that case... Well, we still have to submit, right? If my boss likes me, if my boss doesn't like me, if my boss gives me the hard work, the dirty work, whatever it is, you submit until you can find another job and praise God that that's an option, right? Because the option for these people here in First Peter was not uh, just submit for a while and then you can go find another job and, and go somewhere else. That wasn't even an option for, for these people. So praise God 
that you can find another job. But until you do, submit to the boss. Like, do what the boss says. Now, this is not the same as buttering up the boss, right? We need to, we need to make sure that, we don't, that there's a line that we don't cross over, that we start falling into flattery, right? Um, Peter is not saying be a kiss-up, a suck-up, a brown nose, a bootlick, a flatterer, <laughs> or anything else that you might think of or don't think about. But Submit. Arrange yourself underneath the boss and do what they say. The Scripture, though, has a lot to say about flattery, and it's not good, right? So, so we're not supposed to be flattering people. Proverbs 26, 28, a flattering mouth works ruin. You know, we think it might do something good. It works ruin. Proverbs 28, 23 is in your notes. Romans 16, 17 through 19, it says we're, we're told to watch out for people who cause divisions, who create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that we've been taught. He says watch out for those people and avoid them. Why? Because they don't serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And so we need to stay away from flattery. We need to make sure that we're not um, falling into that trap, but really submit to who's in charge at work. And there are two helpful descriptions for this. What does it look like to submit to the boss? Well, he says submit respectfully. That's the first way, respectfully. Now, the word in the original is the word fear. Fear the boss. And it's not the same fear that we have for God, but it's a healthy fear of the boss. Not because they're better than you, right? But because they have a position of authority over you at work. What kind of power do they have? Well, it's really the same kind of power that the government has in verse 14, to reward those who do good, to punish those who do evil. So, he says, recognize that power in your heart, have a fear, and respect them. It really, it's the same thing that the Bible always tells us. Start with the heart, and then the outside follows. One commentator calls it a healthy apprehension of their displeasure. And he says, quote, Peter affirms that such an emotion is appropriate, and thereby warns against careless disregard of or disdain for such authority, end quote. So, it's it's, it's legitimate. It's, it's helpful for us to be afraid of the boss. Not, not in a trembling, terrifying way where we never approach them, but have a healthy respect, fear of the boss. Again, as we saw last week, all authority comes from God. And so to resist the authority over you is to resist the one who placed that authority over you. God has your boss in the position that he's granted for him or her. So we submit to that person respectfully. And also remember from verse 12 that the reason that we're living these holy lives, part of the reason, in submission is to bring others to Jesus. They're going to see you working differently and acting differently and talking differently, respectfully, to the boss and about the boss, right? This is a heart condition of respect, and it comes out as submission and obedience. That's always what God desires. Begin with the heart, and then comes the outside. You remember Romans six seventeen. Uh, Paul says, thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You heard the gospel and you obeyed it from the heart, and then it came out in your actions. You have Ephesians 6, 5 in your notes, and Paul really kind of spells out, he, he kind of camps out on the heart there. He says, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. <laughs> it's, a, it's a consistent message in the, in the Scriptures. So submit respectfully. There's a, there's a second helpful description. We're submitting. It's respectful and it's broadly. That's the next way, broadly, to the good and to the bad. Um, Peter uses the word despots here. Again, if you're familiar with some Greek words, the word kurios is the word that we're more familiar with. That's a, a lord, a master who's over people, um, and it's usually, it usually has some kind of um, goodness, a goodwill toward those who are under them. This word despot means absolute ruler, it means a sovereign person, a master, and it, has, it doesn't include necessarily any kind of regard for anybody under them. It's just the person who does what they want, what they say. 
Um, we, we think of a despot as, a, as someone like a Kim Jong-un, right? Or, or someone that's, that's a tyrant or, or holding people back and holding people down. But, but Peter says, submit to your master, the, the despot. Not only to the good and the gentle ones, but, you know, those who are more like the kurios, but even the despots, the, the, the out-of-control, tyrannical um, bosses, supervisors at work. Good means upright. Gentle means considerate and reasonable. You know, I mean, yeah, submit to them, but also the unjust. Unjust is the word scolios. It's where we get the word scoliosis from. It it means crooked. It means twisted. It means dishonest and cruel and, you know, somebody with unreasonable expectations. Even, Even masters, even supervisors or bosses who are crooked and wicked and warped, we submit to them. Now, as we're thinking about that, of course, it doesn't mean supporting any kind of illegal or unethical activity, right? Our allegiance is to our good master, Lord Jesus Christ, that, is, that He's always first. But even if the boss is cruel or mean, we still submit as long as we're not breaking laws. You remember Jacob in the Old Testament? He set a good example for us when he served his father-in-law Laban for 20 years, And uh, it was in Genesis 31 where he finally had gotten away. He was no longer working for Laban, but Laban had caught up with him. He chased him down and said, why did you leave? And Jacob could explain why, because he's no longer under his authority. He says, Laban, you've changed my wages ten times. Ten times. He he just tricked him, and 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 then he did everything he could to try to take everything away from Jacob that he had and that he had earned. But for the whole 20 years, Jacob was faithful to that man that corrupt man who was trying to take everything from him. And so, Peter's saying, really, there are no exemptions to this this command. There's no exemptions for bad leadership or terrible bosses. And so, we don't get to sing that old country song, take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. Now, praise God, again, we we can decide not to work here no more. (laughs) But until we don't work there no more, we submit. And praise God for the freedom to find other work. But we submit in the meantime respectfully and broadly. And as we do this, we know as sojourners, as exiles here in this foreign land, we know it's not going to just be all easy, is it? So the second part is even more needful for us. The first part of holiness is submit purposefully. Number two, verses 19 and 20, we need to prepare to suffer commendably. We need to prepare to suffer commendably. Now, the first thing I want to point out right at the outset here, um, this part of our responsibility toward holiness at work is that Peter expands his language in a way that begins to open this up for all Christians in any kind of suffering. Okay, so contextually we're speaking about masters and slaves and employees and employers and, and bosses and all that, but grammatically... Uh, The commentators point out that Peter seems to enlarge this scope to cover all kinds of unjust suffering. Okay, so this is, you know, even if you disagree and you say, this is to servants and I'm not a servant and I'll never be and this doesn't apply to me, this part at least does because he opens it up grammatically to say the principles that you learn here are intentionally for all Christians in any kind of suffering. So even as we're thinking about this in terms of our relations with our co-workers and bosses and all that, keep in mind that these instructions apply to us anytime we're experiencing unjust treatment as believers. So Peter says in verse 19 here, this is a gracious thing to God when we're suffering unjustly. Verse 20, when, when we suffer and we endure, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that God's just, He just loves it when we're suffering? <laughs> he just looks forward to when we're crying and and then pain. No, human suffering is not pleasing to God in and of itself. That's not what Peter says is the gracious thing, just suffering. But in certain cases, it is a gracious thing. Gracious is beauty. It's it's gracefulness. It's commendable. It's something that glorifies God, that that God approves of. It it brings commendation from Him to us, okay? That's what gracious is here. Um, When we are suffering, there are certain conditions where that's true. And it includes the worst kinds of suffering, all kinds of suffering. He says the sorrows, which is pain and trouble and sorrow and grief. And and it includes the inner and the outer. I mean, it can include the beating, the physical beating. It can include the anxiety and the fear going on in our minds over that. 
Suffering and experiencing difficulty and pain pleases God in certain circumstances. What are, those, what are those circumstances? What are those cases? There are three conditions to this being a gracious thing to God. A, in your notes, suffering is commendable when we are mindful of God. Verse 19. When we're mindful of God. Mindful there literally means a joint knowledge. I know God and He knows me. It, it's a mind fullness, a joint knowledge. I think of God. I'm committed to God. I'm trusting God that He's in control. I know that, he's a, that He exists. I know that He's there. I know that He's leading me through this. One interpretive translation is a conscious commitment to God. No matter what kind of sorrows, no matter what kind of pain and suffering I'm, I'm going through, I'm committed to God. So what's excluded is God, where are you, you know, as I'm going through this? Doubting whether God is there or doubting whether He cares. You know, I'm suffering here, God. Where are you? Don't you care? That's not the kind of suffering that's commendable by God when we doubt whether He's even there or cares. It's not commendable when we fall into self-pity. You know, why does this always happen to me? Why do I have to deal with this? That kind of suffering is not commendable by God. Now, as we suffer, we can and we should be pouring out our hearts. We will be pouring out our hearts to God and asking why or, or when will this be over or, you know, God, what are you doing in this time? And, and those, are, those are all okay. We should be turning to Him. That's part of the mindfulness as we're suffering is depending on Him and knowing Him and being conscious of Him, mindful of Him, rather than lashing out at others or falling apart in despair. Rather than demanding that I get treated the way I demand to be treated. Rather than I get my rights, you stop this. I trust in the Lord God and I'm mindful of Him. I have a conscious commitment to God, to what He's doing through those circumstances. It's knowing the reality of His existence and His presence through it all, knowing that He will right all wrongs in the future. You don't have to sit there and say, well, God's just overlooking all of this and nothing's ever going to happen to them. No, they're never going to get anything because of the bad way that they're treating people. No, it's, it's also knowing that God will exact perfect revenge one day for His people. Romans 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so we don't have to wonder or, or worry that, you know, these people are getting away with it. Look at what they're doing. They're getting away. It's not right. It's not, it's not just. It, that's right. It's not. But they're not getting away with it. The Lord will take care of all of that in the future. So, so we're mindful of God through suffering and sorrows. It's looking up to Him rather than around, you know. How come He's got it so easy? How come she always gets the good stuff and I get the bad stuff? How come, the, you know, nothing bad ever happens to those people? It's not looking within and being lost in myself and, you know, self-pity and despair and, and worry. It's not being concerned with what's happening all around, but, but what God is doing with what's happening all around. God is pleased when His people trust Him in the worst circumstances. That, that's commendable by God. That's when suffering is commendable. There's another condition, B, in our notes, verse 19. Suffering is commendable when we endure when we endure, it's not the suffering necessarily that God is interested in, but when we as His children endure through the suffering. As we're mindful of Him, as we're connected with Him through His Word, through prayer, through His people, all of the ways that He's given us to be connected to Him, as we're mindful of Him, we draw near to Him, we endure any kind of suffering and sorrows. That's what the writer of Hebrews 12 was talking about that Pastor Joe read for us this morning. In his exhortation to us, remember that amazing cloud of witnesses that surround us. You remember all those Abel and Enoch and Noah and Moses and Abraham, Sarah, Joseph, so many witnesses all around us. All of the others who were also mocked and stoned and killed, the world was not worthy of them. The writer of Hebrews says, since we have a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, get rid of it. And let us run, how? With endurance. The race that is set before us. Who's our example in Hebrews 12? Who's the example that we can look to for enduring through all kinds of sorrows? In, in, in Hebrews 12, it's the same that we're going to have here in First Peter, Lord willing, next week. Looking to Jesus. 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. Jesus, our example, Jesus, our Redeemer, who redeems us first, then is also our example of enduring through all kinds of troubles and suffering and sorrows. Endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But how do we keep going? You know, we can get tired, we can grow faint-hearted, we can grow weary. How do we avoid that? He says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You consider him. You, you meditate on him. You become mindful of him, right? These are all connected together. These are the conditions where suffering is, is a gracious thing to God. When we're mindful of him, we're, we're meditating on Christ and all that he went through and the example of endurance that He provided for us. We're following that. We consider Him who endured so that we don't grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That's what the writer of Hebrews says, right? That's when the, that's when the real struggles come in. The Christ shed His blood to overcome sin, and He endured So He's not only our Savior, but He's our example. And He endured the mocking and the humiliation and the mistreatment. He had rights as a human being. He had rights. He was innocent of any wrongdoing. All of His rights were smashed. He never said a thing. He endured. He didn't deserve any of it. As Jesus endured, it's to bear up under. It's to endure patiently a hard time. That's the perfect example that he gives to us, that the writer of Hebrews points us to, and, and that's who Hebrew, uh, through Peter, that's who he's going to point us to as well in the following verses. So when God's people are mindful of him, trusting him, relying on him, looking to him through all kinds of sufferings and sorrows, when his people endure through it all, that's a gracious thing in his sight. That's commendable by him. There's one more condition. See in our notes, suffering is commendable when it is unjust. The suffering has to be unjust, verse 19. Also, while doing good, verse 20. Remember that we're living lives of holiness for the glory of our God. Um, So we're not doing wrong things. We're not doing evil things. We're living and acting and speaking in holy ways at work, enduring any kind of suffering for the glory of our Father and our Savior. You know, you think, could this actually happen? Does this happen, you know, I'm doing the right thing and I still get in trouble? I thought of one instance where a servant in charge of paying taxes, the, serv- the, the master could ask the servant, just fudge the numbers here a little bit, and the servant says, I can't do that, and suffers, right? Doing good, suffering, and being beaten for it maybe, but his conscience is clear before God. In our culture, you know, we may not be beaten, we don't have a, a master, but we still are faced with decisions of, I've got to do good, I've got to do right, I've got to, I've got to please my, my heavenly master, my heavenly father, even if that looks like going against the culture at work, even if that means not tearing other people down when everybody else is, not falling in with the crowd. Even when doing good, you can be unjustly made to suffer. If not physical beatings, insults, or unfair treatment, you can be treated differently by people. But that helps us keep this in perspective, doesn't it? I mean, if this is true, again, for those who were physically and literally beaten until their bones were broken and they were bruised and bleeding, they were viewed as property, they had no rights, they were the same level as a cart or a tool, they were to submit. How much easier should it be for us to submit to a bad supervisor? Even with all that we experience and endure, it's still unjust. We're not, we're not making light of that for our situation. The suffering is still real. But even with all of that, remember your brothers and sisters in Christ who have endured much worse as servants, as slaves. Remember your Savior who endured much worse than we ever will. We can endure. We can do it while being mindful of God. And we can do it even when it's unjust. Peter finishes with a question here in verse 20 that's similar to some questions that Jesus asked in Matthew 5. You remember Jesus said, you've heard it said, you're supposed to love your enemy. Uh, You're supposed to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what you've been taught, Jesus said. 
He said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He taught that God the Father is gracious, He's merciful, He's patient, He's good and kind, even towards the unjust, even towards the people who do wrong. Here are His questions. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And remember, tax collector was like the worst kind of sinner at the time. The worst kind of sinners love those people who love them. What, what reward should we get for just you know, being nice to those people who are nice to us? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? You and I are expected to do more, right? Christians are expected to be holy. We're called to be holy, not like everybody else. We're to, to do more than the bare minimum. We're to do more than just loving the people that love us. We're to love our enemies, even bad bosses. Jesus says, do not even the Gentiles do the same. Everybody, you know, the, the easy stuff, everybody can do that. You say, you know, you know this sounds hard. <laughs> I, this th- doesn't sound fair. I don't, this, I don't know if I can do this. It's not hard, brother and sister. It's impossible. Right? <laughs> We're asking the impossible here. In fact, these are Jesus' next words in that passage in, in Matthew 5. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. <laughs> is that a high standard? This isn't possible, brother and sister, without being mindful of God, without growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, without His enabling, without His Holy Spirit working within us, we can't do this. He enables this kind of goodness, this kind of holiness. That's the power of the gospel in our life at work. When we fail at this, it's not because we're missing power. It's not because we don't have the ability. It's because... We've lost our focus. You know, we've started focusing on our rights rather than on our Savior. So Peter asks a similar question. What credit is it? Where's the praise? Where's the commendation when you act all holy and patient as you're getting punished because you did something wrong, right? That, when you sin, when you miss the mark, when you trespass and you're beaten for it, what did you expect was going to happen, right? I mean, we would, we would say that with our kids when, when they were younger and, and they'd get in trouble and no, 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 I don't want to get punished. What did you think was going to happen? <laughs> right? You disobeyed. You knew that this was the, the rule, and you knew that we would find out. This is expected, if you sinned, that you're going to get in trouble. That's not noble to bear up under that, well, I'm taking what's coming, right? I'll take it with all patience. You know, I messed up. I'll take what's coming to move on. The implication is you're not even learning the lesson. Nobody's impressed by that. They might think you lost your mind, but they're not impressed. But if you do good, same word as verses 14 to 15, if you're doing all the things right, if you're doing a, a holy life, you're living that way for the glory of your God and you don't deserve it and you endure while being mindful of God, that is a gracious thing in God's eyes. Again, that's a beautiful, that's an honoring thing to God. If we want to honor God, if we want to be commended by Him, we need to be prepared to suffer in this way, unjustly. Not what's coming to us, not what we deserve. Yes, this is hard. You know, this is the very time that we want to stand up for ourselves. I just stand up for yourself. Assert yourself. Demand your rights. You don't deserve to be treated this way, right? That's what we hear a lot in the culture. You deserve better than that. God tells us to submit. Your submission is not dependent on your circumstances. It's not dependent on the kind of job we have. Our, our obedience to God's commands is never contingent on what we can receive from it. You know, what, what good am I going to get out of this, God? If I don't see it, I'm not going to do it. It's more important to God than, that we submit, even in the hardest cases, than impressing everybody with our assertiveness and demanding that I get what I want. L- let's give God what He wants, what He deserves because He's our Lord. So we submit and we prepare to suffer. That's what holiness looks like at work. So our application this morning, the first thing we need to do is we need to make sure that we thank God for work. Let's thank God for our work. You know, the reason that He put us here, one of the reasons that He put us here on earth is to work. You know, I just want to relax. I just want to rest. I just want to be able to take a break. I just, you know, yes, we need breaks. We can't work all the time. But the reason that we're here is not to get a relaxing time. It's not to, to be comforted. It's to work. 
That's part of the reason that God have us here. So, so let's repent of wrong attitudes towards work, you know. I can't wait till Friday because then I get to get a quitting time, right? You know, I get the weekend. That's not wrong necessarily to look forward to the weekend. I'm just, let's make sure that we're not having a wrong attitude toward work. Thank God for the job he's given us. Next, submit to your boss. Submit to what he or she says. Don't be a flatterer, right? Don't, don't cross the line into any of those things that we talked about. But don't fall into the boss-hating crowd either, right? Everybody loves to hate the boss. Oh, you never believe what he did now. You never believe what she said now, right? Just let's, let's submit to our bosses, our supervisors. Finally, prepare to suffer God's way. We're suffering God's way when, we're, when it's not deserved, when we're keeping our eye on Him, when we're enduring even when it's not fair, when we're rejoicing through it, and when we're helping one another. You know, how was your week? Oh, it was fine. How was your week? Fine. Okay. No. How was your week? It was terrible. It was hard at work this week. I mean, this happened and that happened. I understand. I've been there before. Let's pray together. Let me help you, right? Help one another with this to prepare to suffer God's way. We've not even yet begun to suffer. <laughs> but as we do, we can help one another. And, and here's, look in verse, if you still have your Bible open, I know that I heard a lot of clothes, but if you still have your Bible open, look at verse 21. For to this you have been called. That's what we've been called to. And we'll learn more about this example of Christ next week, Lord willing. Father, we praise you for our Savior. God, we thank you that he was perfect and he is still perfect. We praise you, God, that he came and lived this life and he provided a perfect example, even working alongside his earthly father for his time. Lord, and then doing the work that you gave him to do. His job was to do your will and to do the work that you gave him, and he did that perfectly tirelessly, Father. God, I pray that you would enable us to follow his example at work. Lord, not to look at it as a waste of time, not to look at it as um, something that we dread and that we don't want to do, but Father, a blessing and a gift from you to be able to work for your glory and to be able to, to live and work as a, as a believer of Christ, as a follower of Christ, doing our trade, our work, our skills, whatever it is, Father. Thank you for the jobs you've given us, Lord. For those who don't have a job, for those who are retired, we praise you and thank you for the work that they've done. We pray that they would not stop working, Father. They'd work for you even if they're not being paid. God, for those who need a job, God, I pray that you would provide for them a job so that they can work, they can provide for their family. Lord, I pray that as we are in the workplace, God, that we would live as holy people, that we would be light in this world. God, that we'd be submitting as hard as it is in our flesh, as much as we don't want to. God, we pray that we would do that for your glory. Lord, that you would encourage us and that you would bless us for that. Lord, even if we're not receiving physical blessings, even if we keep getting treated unjustly, Lord, we thank you that you will commend that. And God, that's what we're after. We're after your glory. We're after your pleasure, your approval. We praise you. We thank you that we already have your full approval in Jesus. And God, I pray that we would just add to that by obedience from love. In Jesus' name, amen.